I just wanted to drop by and do a quick little intro for my guest Lee today. We do go into this much deeper in the interview, but I am so excited about this interview. It took us quite a while to get it organized because this is one very busy lady. She took flight lessons as a young girl, then became a snowboarder and got into professional snowboarding. And then after an injury, went back to her first love, which was flying. She is a helicopter pilot. She owns her own helicopter company and she is also a yogi. And then the big cherry on the top of all of that is she is also the first woman's jetpack pilot as well. And we talk about all of those things a little bit deeper in our interview. But this is a woman whose story will just show you how determination and a drive to go after whatever it is that you want, regardless of whether it is something that is accepted, I say that with air quotes, as a female to do or not and she followed her dreams. She may have taken some side roads here and there, but she still just kept following what felt right and felt good in her heart every step of the way. Enjoy this conversation. We had a great time recording it. Stories. We all have them. They're the compilation of your journey from where you started to how you ended up where you are today. Titanium Blonde is all about sharing women's stories. The good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful, and everything in between all of that. I'm Sherry Eckert. This is Titanium Blonde Talks. And I'd like to know, what's your story? Good morning, and thank you for joining me this morning for another episode of Titanium Blonde Talks. This morning, I'm welcoming Lee. She is a female helicopter pilot. And I believe if I have this correct in my memory, the first female jetpack pilot as well. And she's also a yogi. So I'm so excited to have her on this morning because she's another one of these multi-talented, multi-faceted women doing some really, really incredible things in the world. So thank you for joining me this morning. Thank you, Sherry. It's an honor to be here. And, so, uh, and yes, you are correct. I was the very first <laughs> woman to fly a jetpack. <laughs> I, I was like, when I saw that, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe it. That's so great. So go ahead and give a little bit more background so that people kind of have an idea about how what made you decide to become a helicopter pilot of all things because um, I, I there can't be very many women that are helicopter pilots uh we are definitely a minority in the, in this industry but yeah gosh i have a kind of a long history to share as far as what <laughs> brought me here today so uh first of all i'm 46 years old and i have been flying since i was 15. oh um, my god <laughs> yes and uh so it's been a big part of my life aviation i actually now, was, started- was there somebody else in your life that was a pilot or kind of fueled that spark for you? Yes, I was very fortunate. When I was 13, my mom met my stepdad and he uh, was a private pilot and he took me for my very first flight and it just changed. (laughs) Yes, it changed my life. I, I got up there and just the perspective of being able to look down and see the earth in a whole different way just fueled my fire. And, and I was very fortunate that all of a sudden I it clicked and I knew that that's what I had to do with my life. So I think a lot of people don't find their passion until a little bit no. later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or some of them never find it at all. So, so interesting. So you started, your first flight was at 15. Was that a helicopter or a plane? It was a plane. And, uh, and so I immediately said, okay, what do I have to do to make this my career? And my, uh, my mom said, well, I don't want you flying uh, an old beat up plane. So I had to go out and get a couple different jobs even while I was in high school in order to pay for flight lessons in a, in a nicer plane, which was not really nice. It was a Cessna 152, <laughs> which is a little tiny two seater, but a great little plane to learn in. And so I ended up paying my way through. I actually asked my grandfather to help me with flight lessons when I was really young. And, and he's he was the only person in my family that had any money that might be able to help. And uh, he said, you know what? You will feel better about it if you do it on your own. Oh, and I was pissed. <laughs> but, I'm sure you were. 
<laughs> I shouldn't say pissed. I was upset, um, but I immediately said, okay, well, that's what I have to do then. And so I, I worked three different jobs while I was in high school and I made it happen. Got my private license. It took a long time, but I got my private when I was about 19. I think I was how many day after 19. How many hours do you have to have to qualify for that? Legally, you can do it with 40 hours. And I think it took me about 86. So it took me a really long time. And then my dad, who actually lived in Santa Fe, I was living in Southern California at the time. He said, well, if my daughter could do that, I'm going to do that. He went and he put down a credit card and he got his license within, I don't know, six months or something. And it took me (laughs) four years. (laughs) So if you're flying every other day or every day, you're going to retain what you've learned. But it definitely took me a while. I didn't end up continuing at that point. Right after I got my license, I started working on my instrument rating, which is the next rating you go through five ratings. And I started snowboarding. And then all of a sudden snowboarding was like, hallelujah, I have to do this every single day. (laughs) So honestly, um, I'm kind of an all or nothing kind of person. And I put my mind to it and I just went for it, but I let it go. So my flying stopped for a while and snowboarding took over and I ended up not on purpose, but I ended up going professional and traveling the world and snowboarding. Oh my gosh, I had no idea about that piece. Uh-huh. Smokes. So how long did you snowboard then? Uh, about 10 years. Oh and, my God. Uh-huh, the last five of that was on a professional level as far as I had sponsors that paid my way and gave me enough of a small salary that I could travel and compete and take photos and go heli skiing. Heli Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so was that your first experience with a helicopter then or yes been in one before oh okay yep. all right that was my first time in a helicopter and and then all of a sudden I was like oh yeah I forgot about this I but, like to fly uh, <laughs> so what made you decide to then transition out of doing the snowboarding I had a car accident um oh. I think it was 1998 maybe 99 I had a car accident that ended up taking me out I actually was hit by a car in a parking lot and pinned between oh. two cars coming home from a contest that I had just won some decent money at and kind of the height of my career. So that was a a big setback and a mental hurdle to get over. It took a long time to really, and it was a hit and run. So it was- You're lucky you're not dead. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm very lucky. And I do remember feeling sorry for myself one time hobbling in to get some prescription medication after my surgery. And and I saw another girl hobbling in on crutches and she had lost her leg. And for me, I had lost my ACL and partial LCL compression fracture, but I still had my leg and my health. And and I remember thinking how sorry I was for myself. And I saw her and I'm like, oh my gosh, everything could be worse. Puts it in perspective. Yes, perspective, really. And I, I got over it right then. It was like a click and I was like, okay, I need to understand that this happened to me and figure out how to move on. But was your... your knee and your lower leg, it didn't do anything to your hip or your pelvis or anything like that? No, the car I was facing was, was the bumper was right above my knee and the car that hit me was right below my knee behind me. And it only got one leg and the girl was definitely on drugs. They never found her. So I don't know uh, what she was on or or really that she was for sure. But yeah, that was a hit and run. And, and it felt really unfair at the time because I looked at her and I blamed her that she took away my career. But once I let that go, and it took a couple of years, once I let that go, then I was able to really own that that had happened, that right. there's that everything happens for a reason and that I could take it and be sorry for myself or I can take it and go do something better. I up and moved to Hawaii. I was living in Lake Tahoe at the time when I was snowboarding. Moved to Hawaii and someone told me about helicopter school and it just another little light went on and I said, really? You can go to school for helicopters? Because I, I had only thought you could do it via the military. Um, oh, do you have to requalify? Because I know that's a different way to fly. So did you have to then do all sorts of new training or did you just go on with learning your instruments and going from there? It is a separate license. So okay. you, you basically, I went into it and this was, granted, this was 13 years since I had flown previously. And, right. And I had kind of put that part of my life out of my mind, but it definitely helped. I was a, I. I was ahead of the game, but I had to start again with a private for rotorcraft. So I had my private airplane license, but I needed to start with private rotorcraft. Uh, I knew how to navigate. 
I knew how to speak over the radio uh, and I was comfortable with the charts. So that definitely gave me a head start. But school was really expensive. Uh, and, yeah. And again, I did it on my own. I paid out of pocket as I started. I was waiting tables at the time, fine dining, which I really enjoy because because <laughs> you can go anywhere and do fine dining and make decent money and yes. have a lot of time. So because I was working nights, I was able to go to school by day. I was going to say you could have flown every day if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. I, I went three times a week because that's about what I could afford. And I was paying as I went. And right. I really didn't want to go into debt. This was in 2004, early 2004, when they were still giving out loans. Anybody could get a loan. Right. Um, but I was determined to do it without that. I'm like, nope, I don't want any debt. I want to just do this. But I was just going through motions and I and I got through and I did my private license and then I started on my instrument and I was still working 40 hours a week. And there was just one moment I remember sitting down and being like, why do I not want to go into debt? What is holding me back? I know I'll be able to pay that back. Uh, if I go, if I get this loan, then I can finish this and I can actually be a real helicopter pilot. And I think I was just going through motions before that. There was not a particular conversation or anything. It was just like a sitting down with myself. I called up, got a loan for $30,000. And then I was able to, I quit my job and I started flying and training every day. And I finished the next four ratings all really quickly. So that my entire schooling I did in 13 months, which oh, wow. Yeah. That that's that's fast. I have a friend who has been at, you know, chasing her private pilot's license for some time and like she'll go in fits and starts. She'll do it for a little while and then she'll and like you, she wants to pay as she goes. So was there something around fear of getting the loan or it was just, you just didn't want to be in debt or was there any underlying thing or? I'm not sure that I entirely understood that it was possible to, to be a professional helicopter pilot. It was just this fun thing that I was doing and going to this school and the school is all go at your own pace. So you have your own instructor and you just sign up with that instructor. Yeah. I think I just didn't understand that, that the, entire goal was achievable and that it would be a viable career. I didn't know any helicopter pilots. I didn't know any professional pilots at all. I didn't have any mentors. It was yeah. just this yeah. this fuzzy vision of of possibility. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and not having anyone to model that for you, much less a woman to model that for you, I'm sure mm-hmm. was part of the reason why there was that fuzziness there. Is like you know, if you don't have someone to kind of show you the way, how do you know what's a- achievable or attainable at that? point in time. And I would imagine that, you know, that probably was some of the debt was like, I'm sure your return on your investment of getting certified would then be repaid in whatever salary that you would earn as a helicopter pilot. Absolutely. And I didn't know that that was a reality. So yeah, I think that's what held me back. But uh, but then I just took a leap and said, okay, I'm just going to do this, quit the full-time job, finish the training. And I actually got a part-time job two nights a week so that I could at least pay my rent. But it was it was, uh, oh boy, those were some lean months, weren't they? <laughs> it was. Yeah. And I had friends that were going out. I was, uh, in my early thirties, I might've been 30 or 31 at the point that time. And, and, uh, everybody was going out for nice dinners and, and, and I didn't, I didn't, I just put the blinders on and I said, okay, I'm really actually going to do this. And you were still living in Hawaii at this time, correct? Correct. And it's not cheap to live in Hawaii. So <laughs> no, it can be. You can, I mean, you can make any sacrifices you want. Uh, I had several friends that were going to that school that actually lived in their van outside of the school. Oh, <laughs> so if you want something badly enough, you, you can figure it out. You make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. And things that might feel like a sacrifice or in retrospect, you say, oh, I sacrificed whatever it was to do this. None of that matters if you're doing something that you're passionate about and that you really love to do. So can you snowboard or ski at all or is your is your knee just not? going to handle that. I can. Yep. Um, I've had two surgeries on it. I definitely still have pain. Uh, hiking downhill is not fun. I use, yeah, uh, I would imagine any of that forward motion isn't good for your knee. Yeah. But yeah, I can, I can run, I can jump, I can play. I definitely have pain pretty much every day, but it's, uh, it's usable. And I tried to continue snowboarding. I actually tried to, to, uh, get into the Olympics or I should say that was my goal was to get into the Olympics because border cross was what my, what I was best at. I was ranked fifth in the world in border cross, 
when wow. that, when the accident happened. Yeah. And border cross was the very first event of snowboarding to go into the Olympics. I remember being laid up in my bed on this, this range of motion machine with my leg automatically going straight and bending, straight and bending. And I was watching TV and watching them talk about this sport going to the Olympics. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to rehab and I'm going to get there. <laughs> and I did. I actually rehabbed really strong. I came back. I was stronger than I'd ever been in my entire career, but I developed a bunch of scar tissue and my knee became unstable. Mm. So I had to go in for a second surgery. And that when I was rehabbing for that, the Olympics happened. It was definitely, it was tough to get over that. <laughs> but then I look back and I'm like, well, if that hadn't have happened to me, I would not have chosen this next path that has been so rewarding. You completed your training in 13 months. And then what was your next step after that? I was super lucky and I got hired as a flight instructor at my school. There was about eight of us that finished all around the same time. I think I got offered the job because I took everything really seriously. And I was, like I said, I was a little bit older than some of the kids going through school. And I knew that the entire schooling process was an interview. Oh, I, I was never late for my classes. I was never disrespectful. I was, I just always put my best foot forward, not because I was thought that I was on an interview, but because that's that's what I wanted to do. You obviously have determination and that's quite evident from your ability to be able to stay focused and go after whatever the goal was. So yeah. I'm sure people saw that and said, you know, and here's this woman and she's doing this in 13 months. That's pretty impressive. So I'm sure that's part of the reason why they decided to hire. So how long were you a, a flight instructor? So flight instructing, basically the way it works in the civilian world is you pay for your first 200 hours. That was my 13 months and you get five ratings. So you get private, instrument, commercial, uh, certified flight instructor and certified instrument instructor. I had those and then I worked as a flight instructor for the next 800 hours because a thousand hours is the magic number. So once you get to a thousand hours okay. back then, that was 2004, 2005 actually when I finished the companies that would hire you at a thousand hours, that's what they were looking for is a thousand. There were two main things that I knew of because people in my school had done this. Uh, one was to go to the Gulf of Mexico and fly out to the oil rig. So over just flat water with oil workers. And the other was to go to Alaska and fly tours over glaciers in the mountains. And I was like, hmm. I, I, the snowboarder in you was like, snow, snow, snow. <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah, I wanted Alaska with every fiber of my being. Uh, so I was a flight instructor. I did the whole 800 hours in eight months. Oh my God. Is really fast. I didn't <laughs> take a, time that's off. That's 100 hours a month. Oh my gosh. And I was teaching ground school. So when I look back on that, I'm not really did sure you sleep? how I do it. I don't think I did. <laughs> Yeah. But, uh, but it, I knew it was something, I knew that that was a stepping stone time and I, I didn't want to be there for long. So I, again, did not have any life outside of it and it didn't matter. I just did it. So then as far as the first job, that's the hardest part, I think. And that first job, I was super fortunate and I got a job with Tempsco in Alaska and I called the chief pilot every single day. Every other day I would email him and he just ignored me all the time. And he kept saying, well, I don't think I have any spots available. We'll see how these new trainees do. There might be a possibility. And I just kept calling, kept calling, kept calling. Yeah. Somehow I, I uh, <laughs> wiggled my way in there and got, and got it my first real job. I call it a real job, but it was more like an internship because it was, oh geez, it was $1,500 a month. Oh and, my God. Yep. They trained you in an A-star, which is the big helicopter that everybody wants to get into after uh, flying Robinsons. Then they paid for pilot housing. So I didn't have to pay for housing. And I lived with 12 guys in one big house, oh. one big duplex. I was going to ask that you were probably <laughs> the only woman. Yes, I was at first. And then they actually hired another woman. And I think that's why I was able to get the job because they were able to house us both together. But definitely... Mm. Um, Getting into that type of job, I don't think hiring a woman is, is as desirable as it should be. Well, I mean, we could have a conversation all about <laughs> hiring women for any job. You know, you, you think about things like pilots and especially helicopters for some reason. I don't know why, but maybe it's because of the military, et cetera, is that you always think of a male helicopter pilot, right? You, I mean, I don't know until I found you that I've 
ever seen a female helicopter pilot, to be honest with you. There's so, and I know you just went to a trade show this last week. Did you see some other women while you were there? I did. Yes, there was. Uh, there's actually a group of us uh, called the Whirly Girls, and I was number. I am number thirteen, fourteen. And they are now up to 2,000 and something. I think they're getting up to maybe 21, 22, 2,300. So wow, that's that is a, awesome. That's a lot of women uh, over a course of a long time. So there, right. there's, uh, there's definitely a group of us. And, and the more that we can represent and, and show people that it's possible, the more that are coming in behind us. The Alaska thing, you don't do it year round, correct? You just do it in the, the spring? Uh, summertime. So summertime. Okay. Yes. And so I guess I should continue with this story. So after I worked for Temsco, I worked there only three months. I was the last one to be hired and the first one to leave because the season wound down and I got offered a job back in Hawaii with a company that was actually next door to my school. So I had known them and I'd actually paid to do a turbine transition course with them and sh- and shown them that I was really determined and really wanted to work for them one day. So again, I was fortunate and I was offered a job and I was like, all right, that's the finish line. My career is set. I want to be a tour pilot in Hawaii and, and I've climbed the ladder and I'm ready. So I went back to Hawaii after Alaska and moved to the, the rainy side of the island, Hilo, and I flew tours over the erupting volcano in a Hughes 500, which is the oh most fun machine to fly. And I did. How, how much weight is that helicopter? How much does that weigh? Uh, the 500 is, oh gosh, <laughs> I can't remember exact numbers. And if I said it now, I'd probably get it wrong. But, but it's, they're pretty heavy. They're, aren't they? they are a heavy machine. They're, very crash resistant and they're they're very nimble. They're super agile. So it's actually not a great tour machine at all, but uh, but they're really fun to fly. Okay. Mm-hmm. And how many people do they hold? That one holds four passengers. You'll usually see them only holding three passengers, but because uh, I was a small pilot and you could fit the third seat in the in the front, <laughs> <laughs> I flew with my door off. It's a left seat drive. Most helicopters are right seat drive. So I was sitting in the left seat half out the, the window, out the door, oh so that I could have two passengers up front. <laughs> okay. So I have four passengers. Okay. Uh, and it was it was an awesome job. I loved it. I got to see the volcano erupting different times. Uh, yeah. I got to see all kinds of events, and I enjoyed sharing this a magical place with people. And I made good money. And how many how many hours a week or a month can you fly a helicopter? Is there any sort of limits on how many hours you can fly? There are for Part One Thirty Five regulations. It's, it goes in quarters, and you can fly uh, four hundred. Oh, geez, you can fly twelve hundred in a year. 800 in a, uh, two consecutive quarters and 500 in one quarter. And somebody who knows what they're doing is going to listen to this and say, wait a minute, it's this number because <laughs> I can't think of it off the top of my head. <laughs> well, if, it, if, it's, if it's 1200 for a year and there's four quarters, it would, if you maxed it out, it would be 300 hours a quarter. But you can correct. fly more in one quarter and less than another quarter. To another quarter. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So I don't so have those you- numbers in front of me. Did you find that in Hawaii it was pretty consistent? You know, there's a was there Very. any sort of like higher tourist traffic time than others for doing that or no? No, nope. pretty consistent. Consistent. I flew a thousand hours a year working for that company. I flew a lot. I would fly five or six tours a day, and they're all fifty minute tours. Wow. Mm-hmm. And I took one day off a week, uh, and I paid off my loan. I was going to say. <laughs> That was going to be my next question. (laughs) Yep. I made good money, paid off the loan. I bought a condo and I was a grown up with a real job and I was uh, finished with career. So how long were you there? I was there for a year and a half. I got bored. (laughs) Why does that not surprise me? So so then let's talk about that next transition. Then Where, where did you go from there? Okay, so one of my very best friends who was who I had met in helicopter school, her name is Shelly. She's amazing. And Shelly, uh, she was working in Alaska flying R-44s, which is a step backwards in aircraft for me. But the jobs that she was doing, she would try to explain one typical day. And I was like, what do you mean? You just landed on a mountaintop and, and you loaded some pastures and then you went to another mountaintop. And, and I didn't understand what, what it was she was doing every day because it wasn't anything that I had ever experienced. But it right. sounded fun. And I said, huh. And actually what, what the catalyst towards 
the transition for me was I had a friend who was the chief pilot of an airplane company in Hawaii and their airplane had an engine failure and the pilot put it down very safely on a road uh, out near the volcano. And he called and asked if I could come pick up its passengers. And I got so excited that I got to go out and save the day and land somewhere besides an airport because when I was flying to only landed at the airport, I, uh, I realized that I was starting to lose my skills. I was starting to lose how to actually make decisions on where to land. And um, so I up and moved to Alaska. I went back and I worked for the same company that Shelly was working for, flying R44s and doing what we call utility work in Alaska. And it was mostly mining, mineral exploration. And it was just a blast. I got to learn how to longline, which is where you carry something under the belly of the helicopter. Uh, I wasn't very good at it. it took, uh, luckily, I started with what we call uh, water lines. So, so the drill rig would have one line that went down to a stream to pump water uh, to create pressure for the drilling. And I would haul that water line around maybe two or three or 400 feet of water line and string it out from a stream into trying to get it into these little guys' hands. And it was pretty hilarious watching them run around, try to grab it. (laughs) 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 And I got to sling, we call it sling loads. Uh, I got to sling some things like dunnage, which is just, just, uh, railroad ties or pieces of wood that they use to prop up the the drill rig, Uh, things that were not precision, didn't have to go in one specific spot. So I got to learn with the easy stuff until I got better and better. And then I was able to start uh, moving drills and putting drills together, which is very- I would imagine that's a real art to being able to be precise with where you're in a flying vehicle for Pete's sake. <laughs> I, that well, has to take severe concentration on your part to do oh, that. Oh yeah. And, and physicality because you take yeah. your door off and you're actually leaning out of the helicopter oh, looking down. So a good yoga practice helps. <laughs> I was going to say, thinking about balancing while you're, when I say, where does balance show up in your life? That would be it right there. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. If you ever watch someone with a crane trying to move something and if it gets swinging, it's uh, really dangerous. So in a helicopter, it's even more dynamic because the helicopter is not staying in one exact spot. You try to. And you you have to deal with weather too, because I would imagine that a helicopter is affected more by wind than a plane. But yes, the the helicopter, it weather vanes into the wind. So when you're not moving forward and creating your own forward motion wind, relative wind, you have to be pointed exactly into it. And sometimes you get lucky that uh, the drill rig or wherever you're looking is on your side to be able to have that reference. But sometimes you have to be pointed into the wind, which means you're blind to where you're trying to set something. Godly, that's... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there's there's a lot to it, but but it really is. It's uh, what a lot of helicopter pilots strive to get into because it's because it is challenging and it keeps you motivated to sharp. learn and grow and, and it, be sharp. It keeps you sharp. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you still working for the same place or did you move on from there? Nope. I moved on. Hopefully I'm not running out of time because I have such a long time. You got plenty of time. Keep talking. (laughs) (laughs) So I spent, after that first season, it was called Jayhawk Air, flying R44s. After that season, I actually took time off. And that was the first time I'd taken any time off since I had even started school. And I went around, I went back to Hawaii and I just uh, spent a month on each island being kind of transient and just exploring and playing and doing yoga every day. I went to yoga studios and bought a monthly pass and I would just do yoga, do yoga. Went back the following season to Jayhawk again, flew for him. Um, And I did a job in Valdez, Alaska that I really enjoyed. So when, so the company was based in a certain place, but then the jobs were all over Alaska. I've flown everywhere in Alaska and usually out in man camps, meaning like um, little weather huts with a little stove that you stay in. And then there'll be a, a big camp for the, the mess hall. That's where you would go eat. And then there'd be another little uh, tent for where you go shower. Oh. And then there'd be outhouses. So very, oh. <laughs> very rough uh, in the middle of nowhere, but it was fun. It was really, really fun, challenging flying. And being a woman out there is a little bit crazy too. And and the guys would look at me first, like, you're our pilot? I'm like, yep. <laughs> and then I'd give them a safety briefing and they would see that I knew what I was doing. Uh, and then I'd sling something into their hands and set it down gently. And they were like, oh, 
okay, we like you. Yeah. So. <laughs> I was going to say, you probably, they had, you had to prove yourself to them before they would go. Okay. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. But it, but it worked out well. And I always left every job with a, uh, every contract with on very good terms. So I developed a good reputation, but the job that I did in Valdez was two weeks and, uh, and I stayed in a hotel and my cell phone worked and I could have a glass of wine with my dinner in the restaurant. And the, the job was uh, beautiful, beautiful flying. We were, I was working for the electric company and we were sussing out a possible uh, hydro plant. Uh, so I was taking all kinds of workers up there to check the ground density and to check uh, if there were eagles in the area and to check if there was avalanche the, danger. The terrain is beautiful in Alaska. Yeah. I mean, so you got I, to see it in a way most people don't ever get to see it. Absolutely. I, I, and I try to share it with everyone because it's just so beautiful and it's something that most people haven't seen. It's just like you said, but I digress. So after I came back from Valdez, I told my boss, if you have any other jobs in that area, I really liked it. It was very civilized. And if you have any more, I'd love to be the pilot for that. So the following year he said, you know what, Lee, I'm going to have you take a helicopter to Valdez and start a remote operation. And, wow. uh, and so I was all of a sudden like, hey, I get to actually go to this place that I really like and, and do utility work that I really like. Because I was starting a remote operation, I ended up with some time off. Not off, I was always on call, but I had time to meet some of the locals and go for hikes and do things on the days that I didn't have a job. And I ended up uh, meeting my man there. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, was, I was wondering about that, whether you guys met in Hawaii or whether you met in Alaska. We met in Alaska. He heard there was a helicopter pilot in town and, and uh, he called me up and asked for flight lessons. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I see. Okay. All right. So we kind of joked that he used me for my piloting skills, but, uh, <laughs> but he, he, he was, uh, he's just a great guy. And, and he, I was new to town and I was kind of looking for all kinds of information on like finding housing and just getting set up to, to be there. And he became my go-to guy and we just totally hit it off. So in a town of 2,500 people, I'm, I met a good one there. <laughs> so how, how long ago was that? That was in 2008. Long story, very short. The company that I worked for ended up not making enough money there, decided to pull the helicopter out of there. And I ended up on very good terms, left and went and worked for another company. Meanwhile, my relationship continued to grow, even though I was out working in other spots than I wasn't in Valdez anymore. We decided to, uh, to get a helicopter ourselves. Oh, oh to buy your, okay. Uh-huh. So, um, so my man and another partner and myself, and we went into business together. Uh, so I left my job and started our own business uh, just with one helicopter. I was the pilot. Uh, my man's the businessman and, and our other partner was the maintenance guy. Uh, I was going to ask you about that. Do you know how to turn a wrench on your own equipment or do you have somebody else that specializes in that? Uh, you have to, under Part 135 regulations, you have to have a mechanic. I, I can't actually legally touch it, and I, I am not an AMP. Oh. Though, obviously, you learn lots of things, especially working out in the field every once in a while. The starter, you have to bang on the starter or something. Uh-huh. You've got to know some some stuff. Especially sure. in Alaska. I mean, it's not like yes. you could just call a mechanic and say, okay, I'm at the next you know peak <laughs> after those big trees. That's where I'm at. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So anyway, we started out with a, a single pilot 135 certificate that we wrote ourselves with the FAA. I was the single pilot. We had one helicopter and I ended up working all the time. I had a good reputation and I knew a lot of people in the area that were all doing construction work and they happened to be upgrading all the cell phone sites to LTE. And I ended up slinging in $300,000 uh, radio stacks and, and dishes and, and helping build, pouring concrete and all this, all this with one helicopter. And when the season was over, yeah, when the season was over, we, we were like, hmm, we were kind of testing it out just to see if we could maybe break even and make a little bit of money with this helicopter. But we said, nope, we're doing well. We need another helicopter. Oh boy. So we bought another one, got a, a basic 135 certificate, meaning that you can have up to five helicopters and five pilots. Next year, we bought a third one. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> And, and here you were worried about the $30,000 you were going to go into debt to get certified. Seriously. Yes. Yeah. Jump in, jump all in and it'll work out. Long story again, short. Uh, I now am a one third owner of VS helicopters 
and we have four helicopters. We're open year round and we do about 70% of our work is utility stuff, 30% tours. I somehow ended up a business owner. <laughs> That's amazing. Such a great story. And this, this is so, this whole thing for me about creating the space for women and telling their stories is that there are so many incredible stories out there. And if someone didn't know you directly or maybe follow you on Instagram, they would never know this story. And it's such a great story for women of all ages, but especially for young girls to hear something like this, because like you said, you didn't even know that you could go to helicopter school outside of the military, right? Right. So, I mean, there's, there's just not a lot of info out there. And here you went from, I got my pilot license. I did snowboarding for 10 years and and then all of a sudden I'm back to now I'm back to flying and flying a different sort of vehicle than I was an aircraft than I was before. And now you're, you're, you're an owner in a business running a very, what it sounds like a very successful business. And so do you set your own hours? I'm assuming, I know that you take several months off usually in the winter time to go somewhere where it's warm. Mm -hmm. Yes. So it's pretty seasonal. And actually the first three years of business, we closed the doors in the winter and just, we all left. So my, okay. my other partner, uh, he goes to Thailand and New Zealand. He travels the world. And, and uh, my man and I, we go to, we usually go to Hawaii this year. We decided to bring a helicopter and fly around the U.S. So we're actually barnstorming this winter. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know that you guys at one point in time had a house in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And then you sold the house. I don't remember how many years ago that was. I just remember you going through that process. You're sort of, you've got your sort of your home base in Alaska and then you kind of, sounds like Hawaii, but now this year shaking it up a little bit. How out of all of that did you end up becoming a test pilot for a jetpack? <laughs> Oh, really good question. So I, one of my favorite things to say as I'm picking up is, okay, you guys ready for a magical carpet ride, if, especially if someone is nervous. So I always pick up really gently and, and then I just hover and I show this magical hover and then I slowly go into forward flight and float away. And I always say, yeah, this is the next best thing to a jetpack. <laughs> because oh when I was, gosh. when I was young, I was for sure that by, by the time I was this old and I am old, right. And when I, <laughs> when I, look, I know, but when I, when I look back as far as, as a young girl looking at, um, at numbers at ages, right. I was like, well, for sure, we're all going to be flying around in jetpacks. And then that never happened. And I was like, huh, I'm kind of pissed. There's no jetpacks. And one, <laughs> one of my friends said one day, he said, you know what? There is a jetpack. And I saw it. And uh, you have to check it out called Jetpack Aviation. So I started Googling and I found this company, Jetpack Aviation, that actually has a certified N number, meaning the FAA has given an actual number of November 511 Juliet Papa for Jetpack. It is a machine that is, uh, that is they are going into production with them. And they are starting a, a jetpack school where you can go and learn how to fly a jetpack. And so I kept emailing them and say, I really want to go to your school. I, I'm safety conscious. I'm, I only weigh this much. And I think I'd be a good jetpack pilot. And I'm a helicopter pilot. So they ignored me and they ignored me and they ignored me. And I finally found them on Instagram and I started just kind of stalking their page and commenting all the time. And, and uh, one of the guys said, well, you should come to our jetpack school. I'm like, okay, well, I'll email again. I've and been trying, but no one, will, <laughs> no one will answer me. Yes. So he gave me his personal email and I, uh, and I ended up in the very first jetpack training that they ever did, which uh, was, he, he emailed and said, well, we think it's going to be about this much money and we think it's going to be on this, this month or this month. And I said, really? Okay, well, I'm in. Whatever it takes, I'm in. That's when I decided I wasn't going to Hawaii this year. And just living my life for this jetpack moment, I didn't. I knew that they were unorganized and they're in the very beginning process of figuring out how to bring this to the masses. And I wanted to be a part right. of it. And actually, just to correct you, we actually still have the house in Hawaii, but we've got a really oh, great, we have a great tenant okay. in there. And so at some point it could become home again. But uh, for now, that's, that's what gives us the budget to be able to travel the country instead. So where does the jetpack school at then? They don't have a full <laughs> setup. They have a friend with a, a huge yard in an orchard area that, that uh, won't bother people if, 
with jetpack noises because there's no real neighbors. Probably pretty loud, isn't it? <laughs> it's very loud, yeah. uh, and it's and it's dangerous. It's fire coming out of the the jetpack, and oh, um, and I wore <laughs> aluminum pants and a uh, <laughs> and a flight suit and really good boots. And then there's a bucket of water that you can go jump into if you need to. Oh my God, <laughs> I can't believe you did. I saw I saw the video of you getting up off of the ground with it. And you mentioned that you still had a tether line on you while you were doing that. Yes. Yeah, so and, and I saw that and I thought, there's fire and it's like by her legs. <laughs> what is she thinking? <laughs> right. In the cartoons, the jetpacks are just like really relaxed, right? Well, this thing's pretty loud and intense and not easy to fly. But I was going to ask about that. Yeah. But I would say that honestly, the helicopter skills transfer really nice because you do understand yaw and pitch and roll. You understand those axes. When I got there and I realized, hey, all of the skills I've done in my life have led up to this. Like I am meant to do this. I am meant to be a jetpack pilot to inspire people to reach for the stars. And that if you want to be an astronaut, be an astronaut. If you wanted to fly these jetpacks, fly these jetpacks, like everything led up with my snowboarding skills, being able to be very comfortable in the air with my yoga. Hang time. Able to, <laughs> hang time with, with all my yoga practice, being able to stay calm, physically fit and in helicopters. So yes, the, the right hand does your yaw, which is going to make you go side to side. The left hand is your throttle. So if you want to go up, you twist it to the left, you twist to the right to come down. Your roll is actually your, your body. And I had a hard time. I was going to say about that is it's sort of like riding a motorcycle. You can use your body to kind of then yes. shift. Yeah. And so it's a metal bar that comes up underneath your arms. You wrap your arms around it. And this whole contraption is designed for uh, David Maiman, who's the man who made it. He's a big guy and I'm a, <laughs> I'm a small girl. And so it, there's definitely a couple inches on either side that I had to get my arms out and over and around it. And it I pushes hurt your armpits like hell. It does. And there's nerves under there. And, and I had yes. nerves on the left side that gave me a false sense of fire. Like the left hand side of my <sighs> arm felt like it was on fire so much that I had to actually stop and take my suit off and look. And I'm like, okay, sure. yeah. Once I knew that that was a, a false sense that my body was giving me, I just, I just had to bear through the pain. I was like, I'm doing this. <laughs> <laughs> and it was awesome. It was amazing. It was the coolest thing I've ever done in my life. And I would do it again. If they get the funding they need and they need more uh, jetpack pilots for air shows, I am going. <laughs> Oh, of course you are. <laughs> <laughs> I can fly twice as long with the amount of fuel as the guy. I was going to say because because your body weight ratio is going to be lower, much lower than theirs is. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. They say oh it takes God. about fifty what? flights to get off of the tether, and I think I could do it in twenty. <laughs> <laughs> I love you. That's so great. That is awesome. Well, and it's exciting. I mean, it's something new. It's something different. You're the first woman that's ever done this, which is incredible. I'm assuming that as time goes on, the jetpacks are going to just get better and less volatile with fire <laughs> as they start working with more technology and, and changes and everything. But I mean, you're in on the ground floor with this. That is awesome. Thank you. So awesome. Thank you. I'm pretty proud of it. It was really fun. And uh, they have actually just come out with a new vehicle uh, that they're working on and you can pre-order them right now. It is like a motorcycle and it'll be a lot more stable because it'll be a platform below you and it'll be uh, automated. Okay. So yeah. your feet just won't be hanging like, mm -hmm. is that a weird sensation? I mean, cause that's basically like the earth just falling out from below your feet. Right. Which no, it wasn't, it wasn't weird for me. It was the most natural okay. feeling ever. I, that's, Again, like I felt like everything I had done in my life led up to being able to be so that, comfortable with that. Your nice, easy takeoff with your helicopter probably helped you ease to get yourself lifted off the ground with a nice magic carpet ride. Yes. As I say, <laughs> I fly like a girl. I fly like a girl, smooth, gentle, and in control.
There you go. I love that. <laughs> Let's go back and talk about the air show or the helicopter show you just went to. So was that just for pilots or were there people there with helicopters trying to entice you to buy their helicopters? It's the largest helicopter trade show uh, and it's annual. It is everybody in the industry. So MD as in McDonnell Douglas, they've got all their machines there. Bell, Bell Flight, they dropped the word helicopters from their, from their name because they're working towards the future. They're working on Vertol, which is vertical takeoff and landing. I saw those ones machines. with like the big round circular blade things. Mm -hmm. Are those the ones that lift straight up off of the ground there? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yep. And that's going to be without a pilot. So that's oh, that's going to be more fully like a drone. automated. Yeah, I think drones have just changed everything. The actual design of a helicopter hasn't changed in years. I mean, since right. the beginning, really. And so drones have opened up this whole new idea for stable flying machines. Does that make you but, a little sad? Uh, it makes me really grateful to have lived during this time. To, to be able to to be a pilot, I'm talking about it almost in past tense already, but to have been a pilot during this era and then also to get to see the advance of technology, I feel really fortunate. So you kind of have to be almost like a gamer now if you want to fly a helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, there's a lot of people that are already flying. Uh, a lot of the military is all, fully it's all automated. automated. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Interesting. That well, I mean, I guess it saves on human lives if the helicopter should go down or something like that should happen, but do they have as much accuracy when they're flown remotely like that? I don't have enough experience it with myself, but I think so. I think so. Obviously, there's always going to be something that a human might pick out that a the machine couldn't, but it's also the opposite as well. So there's a lot of human error when it comes to helicopter right. accidents. Decision-making is really big. We fly visual. We, we fly by seeing the ground. The drones won't need that. There's a whole lot there in terms of, I guess, if I was somebody who was going to be flying in a helicopter to do something, I'd really want a human being in the pilot seat <laughs> and and not have it be flown by somebody that isn't in the helicopter, but right. maybe that's just me. But um, there's already self-driving cars uh, in yeah. Las Vegas. They're all over the place. They granted they've got a, they have a person in there to override something if it goes wrong, and uh, I think they even have two people riding along, an engineer and a driver. But it's it's automatic. I always just think of happening. the Jetsons in that cool little. <laughs> Uh -huh. car that would float above the air and then when you get in it it would all go into his briefcase when he went into his office <laughs> i loved the jetsons hence <laughs> jetpacks that's why i was pissed we didn't have them <laughs> how many like during the during your busy se season when you're you're flying a lot how many hours a day are you in your helicopter uh, as an owner i'm not flying as much as i would like to be so on on days when it's a very technical job since i'm i'm the chief pilot so I hire and I train all the pilots and it's a pretty transient thing. About two years is as long as I keep the pilots. So on the first year, I'm just overseeing everything, making sure that they're not on a mission that's too uh, intense for them. And then by the second year, I can start to relax. But so I always have kind of a, a cycle cyclical thing. Yeah. yeah, I fly my desk more so than I fly the helicopter. So when I'm when I'm out as a pilot, I'm happy as a clam. I, I bet. Uh, but a lot of the jobs that I do are taking the taking the guys out to a cell phone site or a Coast Guard repeater site, which is like the the radio that emergencies come through. So we have to keep those up and running. Uh, the FAA cameras so the pilots can see what weather looks like so they can make decisions. So we we maintain all those sites in, in very remote places. And I take the workers out. And, uh, and while they're working, I play. I was going to say, I, well, I know you do yoga and take pictures while you're out there, but. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> and sometimes it's really crappy weather. And when it's like that, sometimes I still, I still share that stuff with my followers on Instagram because I want them to see it's not always rainbows and unicorns. Sometimes I'm stuck in the helicopter and it's crappy weather and I'm about to get weathered in and might have to stay the night. Oh, so, so when that happens, do you have somewhere to stay or do you stay right in the helicopter? It has never happened for me. I've been close oh. and I've been stuck for two or three hours, but I've never actually had to spend the night out. And that's, that comes down to decision-making and experience. I've been there long enough that I, I can kind of tell when it's a system that's rolling through. And it depends on my client. If I, if the client 
uh, doesn't want to spend the night there, then I'll make sure to get them out more with a more conservative decision. If they're willing to spend the night and I'm not, they'll stay in their shack. So there's usually a generator shack. That oh, that's right. Okay. Yeah, they'll stay there and I'll fly down to the beach and I'll wait for them to call to let me know that they're ready or I'll just make them come with me. So it just depends. I've, I've luckily never had to spend the night out, but, so I'm, but I'm prepared you- to. I have survival <laughs> gear. I have all of that. I've got I'm satellite sure phones. <laughs> I've got tracking systems. Yeah. You've been flying up in Alaska enough to know what goes on with the weather and what you need to do to be able to take care of yourself if you are stuck somewhere. Absolutely. So yeah. You said mentioned that you end up riding your desk more than you do flying the helicopter. How do you sort of, where do you find some balance there so you don't just go crazy from staring at a computer or sitting at your desk all day? Oh, balance. Balance is key. It's um, my work days are really, really long. So we'll have the utility jobs as well as tours. And then we have bus groups that come in in the evenings. And I personally end up being the driver to pick up people from the bus and bring them to the, to the airport. So my work days are 14 hours. Oh my God. Okay. And, and that's all summer long. I, I legally have to have 13 days off. So I usually take them when it's a bad weather day and I know nothing's going to happen. As far as balance goes, it's really key for me to have a few daily activities that are very small. Five minutes of meditation can do wonders. If I don't, if I don't wake up and first thing do my five minutes of meditation and maybe I forget, I'll get all the way to my car. Before I leave the garage, I sit in my car and do my five minutes of grounding meditation. So that's really been key for me. And it's been a skill that's taken a long time to, to get a daily habit. And sometimes I forget and I'll go a few months without it. And then I'm like, Oh, why am I feeling weird? Ah, I forgot. I got to get my meditation going. Yeah. That, that's kind of how it works for me too. Mm -hmm. Uh, My daily yoga practice. Really, Instagram has helped me with that so much because I have this whole community of people that when I host a challenge or even participate in a challenge, it gives me an assignment that I have to do at some point. So even if even on my 14 hours work day, I'll find 10 minutes to run outside onto the tarmac because my office overlooks the tarmac and the runway and I'll (laughs) set up my little camera and I'll do my handstands for for 10 minutes. Uh, and then that's just a little bit of activity. So that definitely helps me stay, stay balanced. And then I have three things that I do every day in the shower that I would love to share because uh, I think it was in maybe 2009 that I started doing this. Uh, I was on a job that was really intense. It was above my skill set, but I knew that I could get there. And it was, I was flying a huge 500 on a big, huge helicopter job with five helicopters, all more experienced pilots than me moving drills. And, and I would take my shower in the morning and I would just reach my arms around and hold onto each shoulder. And I would just give myself a big hug and say, you've got this, you can do this. I know you can do it. And it helps. It helps to talk to yourself like that. And if you remind yourself once a day, then you got it. So I've been doing that every single day for since 2009. And then I always touch my toes once in the shower, because if I don't practice yoga regularly, I start to lose my flexibility and I won't Mm -hmm. notice it. But if I touch my toes every day, I kind of, I can keep track of that. And the other thing is I do Nali Kriya, which is it. Nali Kriya is, um, it's where you suck in your belly and then yes. like all the way, and then you yes. end up rolling your ass. Ro- <clears throat> yeah. Yes. Uh, it's a cleansing exercise and it's really difficult and I still can't do it all the way, but I practice it every single day. It's it's interesting that you say that because I, um, I follow Jill Miller of Yoga Tune Up and I've done her uh, role model training and she is incredible with being able to do that. She has two kids. I think her son is like two-ish, maybe three. And her daughter, I think is five, four or five, something like that. And her daughter can do that now. And I'm like, damn, I can't even do that. Look at that kid. She's got it going on. But it really is an interesting sort of exercise to do, even if you can't do it completely, just to kind of get that sensation And I think that what I've noticed after 17 years of of teaching yoga and working with people that are midlife and older are a lot of my client base, my student base, is that they have lost a lot of that connection with their 
belly, with their center, with their space of moving into and out from that and mm -hmm. keeping that strong and balanced. And I have a friend of mine who is has been doing work in fall prevention for people that are aging. He told me that the biggest segment of the population for fall is between 50 and 65. And mm -hmm. I said, why is that? And he said, because you're still young enough to be as think that you're as agile as you as you were when you were younger but you're also doing you've got more things on your plate so you're paying less attention and it means that you trip your balance isn't correct he says sometimes you're you, you're losing that connection to your center and so that was very telling to me so that's kind of why i started doing a lot more with the core and that whole belly thing. So it's interesting that you say you do that every morning in the shower because mm -hmm. I'm going to have to try that now. <laughs> <laughs> it's honestly, it, it does wonders for your yoga practice too. I, I haven't been doing it that long. I only started uh, in October and it's been a daily habit and absolutely I can see that it takes a really long time to really learn it, but I can see, I see progress. So when you said it's good for your yoga practice, can you explain why that is? What, where do you see that it's made a difference in your practice? In handstands and, and uh, inversions for sure. Uh, in everything really, even in walking, it's just, it's a muscle that for me, I know has been just quiet for a long time. <laughs> this little <laughs> dormant muscle that I don't even know how to use. Yeah. Uh, so once you start to engage that on a more regular basis. It's just like they call the floating yogis when you can float and fly. It's because right. you're pulling that uh, mula bandha in and right. uh, you just, it improves everything, but definitely handstands big time. <laughs> <laughs> so if I, even if I haven't taken my morning shower and I'm going to do a handstand practice, I'll do my Nali Kriya before handstand practice every time. Do you teach yoga at all or just, just practice? I did a yoga teacher training in 2011 and it was just to in just to get my own practice deeper. And I learned a mm -hmm. lot, philosophy, yeah, history, it all of it, loved it and made, made some great connections then too. Uh, I have not taught, I taught one class right after that because I went to a yoga retreat right after that. And on the last day of the yoga retreat, I, I uh, offered to teach and really enjoyed it, did, did just one class. And again, that's 2011, but I've been thinking about teaching lately and I just had a friend who did a uh, camp. She's a triathlete. So she did a running and biking camp, fitness camp, and invited me to come along and teach. And so awesome! I did. Yes. And this was just last week. Oh, uh, okay. So I did five, uh, actually four. It was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday each day. And this is after riding 40 miles on a, on a road bike oh, and then <laughs> just being physically exhausted and then doing right. something that I'm slightly uncomfortable with. I'm not uh, shy to, to speak in public. I, uh, ha I'm not well-versed in speaking. I've got my own practice that I've been practicing for almost 20 years now, but I don't speak what I'm doing. So it was a big challenge. And I would practice each night, even though I was really exhausted after these long boot camp days. And I'd come home and put a playlist together and do a yoga flow and record it and take notes. And then, uh, and then I would teach it the next day and it was the same ladies. So I couldn't do the same flow each day. I had to make it very interesting <laughs> <laughs> and I loved it. So teaching is definitely more in my future and I'd like to do some online classes as well. Um, I, I'm not very, I've had so many physical injuries and I've, and I'm not super bendy. I'm not, naturally flexible person. I've worked very hard in my practice. So I understand how it feels when you can't do certain things. So yeah. I feel like I can teach the normal body how to do things. And I love it. Well, and you know, it's one of those things. So I went through teacher training 18, God, 18 years ago, been practicing for 26 years. So practicing and teaching two totally different things. Totally. And it was it was sort of odd to kind of make that transition. And then to be able to find your voice as a teacher, it just comes with time. You know, everybody has to start at the beginning and, and you kind of move from there. And the longer that I teach and the older that I get, it's more about I use my body as the testing ground because I want to stay as active and mobile and flexible as I possibly can. I want to be teaching yoga when I'm in my 90s. 
So that I, I feel that strongly. I've seen yoga change people. I mean, it's changed my life, but I've seen it change my students' lives. And so I look at things like that and I think how best to communicate something that maybe is kind of scary or asking them to step outside of their normal patterns of motion. How do we look at things like functional motion and maybe needing to modify a specific pose for a specific body because I've seen so many bodies come through my yoga classes and not everybody is the same. So how do you make a, the practice of yoga work for all of those disparate bodies that come in to step on the mat? And that was the thing that took me the longest was to not be so adherent to your foot needs to be here. Your knee needs to be here. This is, you know, how all of these things are supposed to be in an ideal practice, that's great. But if that's not where your body is, then you need to learn how to do. And I am a huge proponent of props. I love props. I call them the toys of yoga. They're some of my favorite things. <laughs> Same. Because it just, it makes it so that students can be successful, even if they can't get their fingertips to the floor and there's nothing special about your fingertips touching the floor in triangle pose or any of that. So, well, I, that's exciting for you because I think that having that four day long period where you were teaching every single day is a real good immersion for you to decide whether this is what you want to do or not. So absolutely, maybe, maybe that way you can figure out a way you can squeeze that into your days of writing your desk. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I'll be able to teach during, uh, during my the summer. summers, but I, I take all winter off. So, so I absolutely when, could. When do you start up again? Back in May? Uh, no, April. It'll be the beginning of April. I pretty much work from beginning to mid-April to end of October. And then even during the summer, the winter months while I'm gone, I'm still working on billing and invoicing, talking with the pilots and keeping things organized. I'm doing marketing. So it's, I'm never fully off as a business right. owner that you never are, but, uh, but I definitely could find time to teach. And, and I, uh, I, I see two niches for myself with teaching because I really love to make it accessible for everybody. Uh, one of my favorite teachers, he would always show two two ways to do a pose and he'd say neither is better there's no ego involved you can yeah. try it this way you could try it that way and then maybe if you that doesn't feel right you could try it this way and then you can change your mind and go back to the other way it doesn't matter that's not a better yogi than the other in fact the best right. yogi is the one that is not pushing their limits and i also really enjoy workshops and making uh, making fancy poses accessible to people that are have a good dedicated practice and want to try something new. Uh, so I like to break things down and show, I, I like to show the realness of, Oh, I'm going to try this and maybe I fall over. Right. <laughs> you can try it too. And so what if you fall over? It doesn't have to be perfect. <laughs> there is no perfect and there is no finish line. Like no. uh, there's, we're all a work in progress always. Thinking about that workshop space, when I was talking with Steph Gongora and we were talking about the fact that she wasn't always a yoga instructor and she, when they, when she and Ben were talking about opening their retreat center in Costa Rica, they just wanted to host retreats there, not necessarily do any of the teaching. And then she got certified and she had made the comment to me. She said, you know, I didn't want to be a daily or weekly yoga teacher. She said, I really want to do workshops or retreats because I want to be able to break down those more intricate poses or the ones that take more work or learning the basics to build up to do them, et cetera. And she said, and having a concentrated period of time to do that is is really where I feel like I am best as an instructor. So that was the first time I'd ever really talked to anybody who was like, yeah, I don't want to teach daily or weekly yoga. I just want to do workshops and I just want to do retreats. And I mean, she's very successful with doing that. So I think that you could do the same thing, especially in your off season is just start, you know, leading retreats somewhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Steph is a, is a real inspiration. She's amazing. And, uh, and I, I feel the same way as far as there's so many ways to get exercise. Yes. You can go out for a run. You can go to spin class, whatever to have to turn yoga into an exercise. That's not what I want to do. I want right. to, I want to either 
help to get beginners into involved in it and make it accessible to them and just not not scary. It's not a scary thing. Everybody can do it. And I want to yeah, help build into big poses. And how do you get there? That's how do you the, get to that peak pose? Yeah. That's the fun stuff. And and alignment and specific alignment yes. that's not gonna injure you. There's so many yoga flow mm-hmm. things that are happening these days that I just really don't enjoy because you're moving through things so quickly you need to stop and figure out what exactly to do with your scapula well and that's why i have always been i started with an iyengar class and that's really i mean we do do some movement in my classes but a lot of it is i want you to get into a pose and i want you to breathe and i want you to feel your body and then say what is something small that i could move or adjust to make it more easeful for me to be in this pose i love that actually have a conversation with your body on your mat, right? And 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 be dialed in to what your body has to tell you. Mm-hmm. And not with, from a sense of judgment or expectation, but curiosity, because there's all sorts of things that you can learn about yourself on your mat that we don't take the time to do in our ordinary day. So it's really all around trying to get people for that 60 or 75 minutes that I have them in my class of come and let's play yoga. Let's play yoga. Let's have fun. Let's be curious. Mm -hmm. Laugh at yourself because I laugh at myself when I'm trying to do some of this stuff at home and I fall over and land on my bed or whatever it is that, you know, this should be something that's fun. That is a way to be able to have a conversation with yourself that you don't make time for in the rest of your day. So yes, I wholeheartedly (laughs) agree. And that's what it's about. And that it's about being mindful, playful and being present. And you can be present on your mat. You can be present flying a helicopter. You can be present flying a jetpack. You can be present (laughs) flying on a snowboard. It's, it's all mindful movements and things where you are concentrated and focused. And that's, it's all the same. I want to thank you so much for making the time to have this conversation with me. I just have, I followed you for quite a while and I didn't realize that there weren't very many women helicopter pilots out there in the world. And just what an incredible story that you have. I just, I thank you so much for making the time to share that story because I think it's so important for other women to hear all of the things that you've done in your life and the choices that you've made. And and here you are a business owner and you own helicopters. I mean, I, that's just incredible. And I thank you so much for sharing. Thank you, Sherry. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for helping to get my story out. I really, really appreciate it. I just Great. want everyone to know that they can do anything in their lives as long as they're not afraid of the hard work. That's all it is. Well, and you guys, everybody out there listening, you need to make sure that you start doing some of these three things she does in the shower every morning, because I think those are some really easy and great things to do is just to tell yourself you've got this every single day. Absolutely. Thanks, Sherry. Thank you.